Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our author events at www.skylightbooks.com. At our website, you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. And don't be afraid to follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. So tonight we're here to celebrate this uh, publication of the Cambridge Companion to the Literature of Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, something that we've strived for in this store is to um, sort of champion Los Angeles literature and Los Angeles history and hopefully be a good resource for that. And so we're really happy to have these people here tonight. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn it over to the editor of this anthology. Please welcome, welcome Kevin R. McNamara. So I, I am the editor, um, and we've got uh, three people who've written chapters who will be coming after me. Before I do that, I want, he's at the camera, uh, Rod Bradley, who is responsible for our lovely cover photo for this book. I'm first time. So these are all people that I've been working with, and finally now, after two or two and a half years of work with them, are finally meeting them. Uh, I'm going to do some, I'll read a little bit from my introduction and then read from a couple of the chapters, the early chapters. The book is divided pretty much in half. There are chapters dealing with periods in Los Angeles literary history and then chapters on different genres. And as it happens, we have uh, the other three readers are dealing with genres. We have Bill Moore, who's working on, who's going to read from his chapter on Southern California poetry. Uh, Scott Bryson, who is, oh, is sitting down in the back now, uh, writing on uh, LA as a site for uh, echo writing. And Eric Avila, who is writing on some of the major uh, essayists who've attempted to explain Los Angeles. Okay. And we'll be going for about 12 to 15 minutes apiece. So from the introduction, Landmarks. Defining the geographic extent of Los Angeles is the first challenge for anyone who would study its literature. Concentration defines New York, where even Brooklynites refer to Manhattan as the city. Los Angeles is defined more by sprawl. Much of iconic Los Angeles, from the beaches of Baywatch to the streets of Beverly Hills 90210, lie beyond the city limits. The larger Los Angeles County still fails to encompass Disneyland, Fontana, famous as Mike, Davis, Mike Davis's Junkyard of Dreams, and Huntington Beach, whose pier, according to Reiner Bannum, is one of the constituent monuments of the surfing life. As a literary subject, however, Los Angeles is less a city, county, or metropolitan statistical area than a state of being, a state of grace, fear, emergency, or exception, depending on whom one reads, anchored in the area south of the Tehachapi Mountains, north of San Diego, west of the desert, and squarely in the collective imagination of utopia, dystopia, and more recently, the urban future. More than any other American city, Los Angeles is a city made of words. It did not grow so much as sell itself into existence, William Alexander McClung observes. This marketing effort was limited not, to the, not only to the Chamber of Commerce and Developers, the visual and verbal artistry of painters, photographers, and writers like the coterie around Charles Fletcher Lummis at the magazine Land of Sunshine, and even the logos on crates of produce shipped east helped transform the climate into a palpable commodity that could be labeled, priced, and marketed. The story of one possible Los Angeles begins with these boosters, the School of Sunshine, we might call it, who celebrated Los Angeles as paradise found and spun Arcadian myths from the world of the Californios or the early Spanish settlers. This myth quickly enough spawned a counter-myth. The School of Noir depicted the rot in Eden, from political corruption and financial chicanery to the ersatz culture and kitsch spewing from Hollywood. Mythic Los Angeles thus condensed into a generation the transit from fresh green breasts of the new world to land of foul dust floating in the wake of dreams that F. Scott Fitzgerald charted for the United States as a whole over three centuries in the Great Gatsby. 
enough of me. This is from David Wyatt, who writes a chapter on Los Angeles fiction from the 20s through mid-century. Upton Sinclair's Oil, 1927, begins as a dream of speed. Sinclair calls his opening chapter The Ride and bases it on a trip he and his wife Craig took with a big oil man who wanted to buy two lots they owned on Signal Hill near Long Beach. He asked us to come and look at a ranch he offered in exchange, Craig writes in Southern Bell. So he let him drive us in a big fast car breaking all the speed laws. The property they saw that day would become the Watkins Ranch in San Alito, the site of Dad's big strike in oil, and a place that would stimulate Sinclair in Sinclair a prescient depiction of the soon-to-be-developed oil fields near Bakersfield and Kettleman Hills. Thrown into a storm of motion, Sinclair's reader can only come along for the ride. Like Dad, his business is with things before him, and the past is past. As impatient a driver as he is deliberate a businessman, Dad wants a speed law turned inside out and dreams of a California where it will one day be illegal on such roads to drive less than 40 miles an hour. 1927. You are racing with other people who are always threatening to get your oil. I'm living in Houston now. It sort of has an interesting resonance for me. <laughs> Sinclair chooses to make his protagonist a kind capitalist who keeps coming up with a happy solution to his son Bunny's ethical problems. He thus directs his critique onto forces rather than men, a recurrent theme in the procession of big California novels that runs from Norris's The Octopus to Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath, novels which depict the state as uniquely hospitable to concentrations of power. Each writer imagines a conglomerate, railroads, oil, agribusiness, acquiring a momentum of its own, a huge machine in which every cog had its place, and they are devoted to mystifying its own workings. It demands a fictional response of answerable scale. The challenge becomes to keep the resulting loose baggy monster moving. As Norris maintains, no one who sets a thing in motion but keeps an eye and a hand upon its speed. Like an engineer guiding a train, an author must keep his mind upon releasing of the brake. Norris, Sinclair, and Steinbeck each set out to write a story that will keep readers moving toward an anticipated pivotal event. Yet to write toward such an end is also to identify with the momentum of the very thing being resisted with the machine itself. And so these writers find themselves attracted toward digressive form. In a fictional field where relations stop nowhere, this call is less toward the pivotal event than it is to stop and to think. Wyatt in this chapter begins by tracing out an idea that he calls the novel of speed, which he argues is a particular LA genre. And then he develops it by going into uh, into the, into the major noir novels. As Bunny and Dad approach Angel City in oil, they encounter one or more subdivisions, as they were called. Acreage was being laid out in lots and decorated with row of red and yellow flags fluttering merrily in the breeze. Seven years after Sinclair had imagined Dad and Bunny arriving in Los Angeles, Frank and Cora drive out of the city in James M. Cain's The Postman Always Rings Twice, passing on their way a house that was being built, and all the way out we talked about how not many of them have gone up lately, but the whole section is going to be built out as soon as things get better. Even in 1933, in the depths of the Great Depression, there was a sense that Los Angeles was only going to continue to grow. Acceleration had become the theme of the story, one that will culminate in the Arroyo Seco in 1940, where the region opened its first freeway. The felt sense of momentum was one that could reach down even to a writer's style. When Sartre called Horace McCoy's They Shoot Horses, Don't They, the first important existential novel, he meant to, invo to invoke its sense of human thrownness. But McCoy's depiction of life as continuous motion has much to do with a specific set of local conditions. The dance marathons and taxi dances offered up in Los Angeles to those with too little money and too much time. Gloria and Robert have come to California to make it in the movies. 
and failing that, decide to enter a marathon dance contest down at the beach. Robert estimates it will take 2,000 hours to win. Even before she enters the contest, Gloria admits that all she wants to do is to die. As her shoes wear out and her misery deepens, she pressures Robert to end it for her. Finally, she produces a pistol. Robert then remembers his grandfather shooting a horse with a broken leg. It was the only way to do it, to get her out of her misery, the grandfather explained. So Robert takes the pistol from Gloria and shoots her in the head, offering up the title of the book as his reason for doing so. Perhaps McCoy's novel does deserve to be called existential, at least insofar as it deals with being in time. Unlike Sinclair's Oil, there is nothing in They Shoot Horses to explain the feelings and actions of the characters. No attention to material conditions or to the political and economic practices native to Los Angeles. It's a novel of speed. The novel of speed takes as a given a background that must be inferred. It tends to be short and to be marked by striking economies of style. It leaves little room for the direct expression of emotion, preferring fascinating surfaces to mere depth. It can also question these efficiencies and come to know that there has to be a better, more life-affirming way. And it is a kind of novel that seems to arise from and to be particularly suited to this place called Los Angeles. Russell Berman writes a chapter on the uh, British expatriates and the German exiles who came and settled in the area during World War, before and during World War II. And I'm going to read the last couple of paragraphs of his chapter the, dealing with the German exiles. In his poetry, Bertolt Brecht presents Los Angeles as a melancholy landscape. Its inadequacies evoke sad reflections rather than the emphatic derision of Evelyn Waugh. Landscape of Exile records the first impression, quote, the oil derricks and the thirsty gardens of Los Angeles in the ravines of California at evening and the fruit market did not leave the messenger of misfortune unmoved. The dialectic of industry the oil derricks, in nature, the gardens, or of emptied nature in the ravines and the surfeit of the market, provide the scaffolding for Brecht's thinking, which comes to a head especially in on thinking about hell. Recalling that his brother Shelley imagined hell to be a lot like London, Brecht insists that it must be still more like Los Angeles. Los Angeles is a venue of broken promises with great heaps of fruit which nonetheless have neither smell nor taste and houses built for happy people, therefore standing empty, even when lived in. Somebody likes that. <laughs> Rick develops these themes in the Hollywood elegies, some of which Hans Eisler set to music in, Hollywood so in the Hollywood songbook. However, the Southland was not hellish for everyone. One of the most affirmative and most widely circulated representations of life in Los Angeles involved beaches and surfers. Its key literary source was Friedrich Koner's Gidget. A Hitler-era refugee from Austria, Koner captured the experiences of his 15-year-old daughter in the summer of 1956 when she learned to surf on the beach at Malibu. He juxtaposes the constraints a teenage girl felt in a middle-class family life with the tempting freedom of the surfers against the backdrop of the beauty of the, of the Pacific Palisades. Beneath the teen romance narrative, there is a touch of emancipation when Gidget recognizes that it was in the end her mastering the sport and her ability to shoot the curl that mattered more than boys. Quote, maybe I was just a woman in love with the surfboard. Yet beneath the optimism, Gidget conveys a worrisome note, the hallmark of exile writing, the return of the repressed past. Her parents, we learn, are immigrants, a feature fully erased from the 1959 film with Sandra Dee. References abound to Central Europe, but all lighthearted, vacations in the Alps and Austrian pastries. 
Yet when the surfers celebrate one evening and sparks from their torches set the dry Southern California hillside on fire, the naive narrator refers twice to it as a holocaust, a term incongruous in her teenager vocabulary, but which has a long history as a designation of massacres of Jews. The word choice surpasses Gidget's own consciousness and reveals the genocide as the otherwise unspoken subtext. The radiance of the surfer culture, at least as generated by Gidget, bears mute testimony to the conflagrations from which the exile authors had escaped. Okay, next will be Bill Moore reading from his chapter. And let me make sure I get it right. Scenes and Movements in Southern California Poetry. Thank you, Kevin. This is, um, for me, uh, an extraordinary moment. Um, in part, there's this opening sentence I will read from my portion. goes, essential to the survival of all these scenes and communities is the fact that by the late 1970s, Los Angeles had a set of independent bookstores. Many of you may not realize that the space you're in was started as a bookstore back in the early 70s by a man who first worked at Papabock, which is a bookstore over in West LA, which you can no longer find the building. It's been knocked down. Uh, LA loves to erase its history. Uh, a, a fellow who was a book clerk worked there named Wea Miwamoto. And he came over here and he set up a store called Chatterton's. It had an enormous impact on Los Angeles poetry in that people like Jim Crusoe and myself could bring our books here and Koki paid us up front. Here's a 10 copies of the book. Well, here's your money. He didn't wait and, you know, like to pay us for the books. And that was, and it was not just the money. It was the honor and respect he gave us as poets. Um, so this, to me, is sacred ground. This is not just sort of another bookstore. Um, I'm going to read a very short section, or a couple short sections from chapter 13, Scenes and Movements in Southern California Poetry. Um, which might be thought of as sort of a, a preview for a book, a much longer book I'm working on called Backlit Renaissance, Los Angeles Poets During the Cold War. The bookstore scenes and the Maverick avant-garde. This is on page 161 if you happen to be following along. Essential to the survival of all these scenes and communities is the fact that by the late 1970s, Los Angeles had a set of independent bookstores willing to stock and restock poetry books and magazines, including a favorite stand-up hangout, Pearl, edited by Los Angeles poets Joan Job Smith, Barbara Hawk, and Marilyn Johnson, and Doran Robbins and Yuri Hertz's Third Rail. One store was central to this development, Papabach in West Los Angeles, originally known for its willingness to stock Marxist literature and the availability of draft counseling in its back loft, launched its own literary magazine with a diminutive nickname of a title, Baki, that ran from 1972 until 1981. Lee Hickman became its poetry editor in 1977 and then established Timbler, which achieved national stature before he left after 10 issues due to the onset of AIDS. Hickman's primary focus in Timbler was on poets who be characterized as the maverick avant-garde. And he shared this interest with Paul Vangelisti, a poet and editor who had moved to Los Angeles in the late 1960s from the city of birth, San Francisco. I should add as a side note here that Chatterton's was also briefly a publisher. It published Paul Vangelisti's book, The Tender Continent, uh, which if you can find would really be a rare edition. Viewing himself as an artist in exile, Vangelisti edited Invisible City throughout the 1970s and has published several dozen volumes of vitally experimental poetry through his imprint, Red Hill Press, in addition to being a major translator of Italian poetry and editing a series of literary magazines, including New Review of Literature, and or. Although the first half dozen is issues of Invisible City featured such poets as Bukowski, the contributors who most epitomized the freewheeling free approach of Vangelisti and his co-editor John McBride 
were Amiri Baraka and Jack Hirschman, the latter of whom translated Antonin Artaud, René de Pestre, and Vladimir Mayakovsky. Hirschman moved to San Francisco in the mid-1970s, but returns frequently to Los Angeles to give readings. Many women poets aligned themselves with the visual arts and performance community at the Women's Building. How many people here remember the Women's Building? I asked my students, almost none. And especially the women go, there was a Women's Building? <laughs> Google it. And the whole entire story is online. It's, and it's extraordinary. Everybody should know about this incredible institution. At the Women's Building, which flourished as a feminist institution in Los Angeles for close to two decades. Housed in a former art school until it moved to an industrial section of downtown Los Angeles, the Women's Building eventually included a print center that trained women to typeset and to operate a letterpress machine. Its magazine, Chrysalis, was not a literary magazine as such, but a venue for feminist cultural commentary, including creative writing by poets like Eloise Klein-Healy and Dina Metzger. The single most important literary event at the Women's Building was the Conference of Women Writers in 1975, recorded in Holly Prado's Feast, 1976, an experimental book of prose poetry far more audacious and memorable than contemporaneous texts such as Lynn Hedginian's My Life, 1987. While Healy, Metzger, and Prado have remained aligned with the West Coast Small Press Movement, other poets associated with the Women's Building Reading Series or its in-house Women's Graphic Center explored the alluring archipelago of cultural exile that Paul Evangelisti has attributed to an, quote, extreme presence and absence, unquote, summed up by Igor Stravinsky's apposition, splendid isolation. Desire in L.A. by Martha Ronk, who has taught Renaissance literature at Occidental College for many years, is a prime example of this provisional identity. Waves turn to go out to sea, a whole city expanding like the universe. Each drive up canyons, each centrifugal wind reaching beyond what used to be the limits of a city, and none of us can stop pushing beyond our time, our money, the need for some outskirts of a city already wholly outskirts, reaching for, like erotic desire, the nether parts, Mannered fingers and necks elongate beyond themselves. Skin hurts drying in the wind. And waiting to find transparent expansion into the upper reaches of not even belief, but craving our own unbelief. And that image of another's skirt, lifted by the warm, slightly soiled air of an open grate. For other poets, the exile is more literal. Bertolt Brecht was able to return to Germany after spending over half a decade in Santa Monica, but Aleda Rodriguez, who was born in Cuba, entitled her first collection of poems, Garden of Exile, as a declaration of ineluctable fate. In my mother's art, she examines the aftermath of banishment and focuses on how exile impacts generational social transformation. In my dream, my mother sat on the floor painting several small pictures of Los Angeles. I recognize City Hall, poking up like a giant rapidograph pin behind some low, low yellow buildings on which the sun burned fiercely. And the Ambassador Hotel, its long awnings and withered glamour, a bluish evening seeping up its faded facade. The paintings lay around her on the floor, and she was clearly enjoying herself. How had I never known this? That my mother was a great artist and that she did it so naturally, so casually, just sitting there on the floor, her work, the obvious product of her delight all around her. And looking back on the diverse communities of poets who have inhabited the canyons, side streets, boulevards, and beaches of Los Angeles, one can wonder how so much diversity could adapt to a literary congestion akin to its notorious freeways. In my introduction to Poetry Loves Poetry, I suggested that one of the elements that attracted poets to Los Angeles and continues to sustain them was the same thing that brought the film industry here, the quality of light, 
which possesses more variety and intensity and tones than any other place in the United States. Almost all of the poets who continue to work in this city find strength, not just in the light, but in the open acceptance of each other's community's visibility to the others, and in the fruition that awaits their patient labor. I want to thank Kevin McNamara for his incredibly patient labor with each of us as writers of these chapters, and uh, we'll ask you to give him another round of applause. Um, thank you. Scott, Scott Bryson, I believe, will be coming up next to you, right? All right. Welcome, Scott Bryson. Thanks, Bill. Oh, what a turnout. Um, if I'd known there'd be this big a crowd, I would have written a better chapter. <laughs> the, um, let me see if I can move this a little bit. Um, all right, so my chapter looks at um, the way nature has been presented in Los Angeles literature through the, through the decades. It goes a little something like this. The terms urban and nature have been set up in our cultural imagination as opposites that necessarily deny each other. The average person has probably never heard them joined in the phrase urban nature, even though examples of it, New York's Central Park, Chicago's Lakefront, a Houston Bayou, spring to mind easily enough. People may be especially unlikely to think of concrete-laden and smog-burdened Los Angeles in relation to a dynamic and thriving natural world. This despite the region's well-known beaches, mountains, arroyos, gardens, and even natural disasters. And as surprising as it may be to many readers, the natural world, world pervades the city's literature as well. When we examine Los Angeles texts through what some might call an eco-critical lens, we begin to appreciate the intricate role nature plays in Los Angeles literature and in the city itself. So in my chapter, what I do is I look at several different ways that the natural world is depicted in mostly canonical and some non-canonical LA lit. This evening, because of time limitations, I'll just look at a few. One of the most traditional ways that LA authors have used nature is to create a mood or to convey the feel of a scene. Think, for example, of the relentless rain in the big sleep. As opposed to the sunshine that actually dominates most days in Southern California, the novel's ubiquitous rain helps Chandler establish a mood that we now call noir. Over and over in Chandler, meteorological facts serve to render a bleak and even ominous ambiance. As Philip Marlowe moves through the depravity of Los Angeles venues, high and low, the climate, along with the dark days and nights it so often produces, serves as an emblem of a social world bereft of goodness and light. One natural force LA writers have especially enjoyed writing about are the Santa Ana winds which appear repeatedly as a biomystical force that compels humans towards mania, mania and violence. Perhaps the most quoted line from Los Angeles literature comes from Chandler's take on the fierce autumn winds. Here's what he writes in his short story, Red Wind. It, by the way, you should... As I read, you should, uh, in your mind, if you can sort of transpose into a, a Bogart voice, it'll make it sound better, um, instead of the uh, Texas twang. <laughs> it was one of those hot, dry Santa Anas that came down through the mountain passes and curl your hair and make your nerves jump and your skin itch. On nights like that, every booze party ends in a fight. And here's the line that you hear all the time. Meek little wives feel the edge of the carving knife and study their husbands' necks. Anything can happen. Joan Didion takes this theme even further, explaining that when the Santa Anas appear, they initiate the season of suicide and divorce and prickly dread wherever the wind blows. Here's how she puts it in the opening paragraphs of her essay, Los Angeles Notebook. Tonight a Santa Ana will begin to blow, a hot wind from the northeast. I've neither, neither heard nor read that a Santa Ana is due, but I know it. And almost everyone I've seen today knows it too, 
We know it because we feel it. The baby frets, the maid sulks. I rekindle a waning argument with the telephone company, then cut my losses and lie down, given over to whatever it is in the air. With their emphasis on this mysterious power of the Santa Anas, Chandler and Didion create one of the most representative and abiding themes in all of L.A. literature, underscoring the intense, intensely intimate connection between the human and non-human worlds. Another perspective on nature, one that's pervaded L.A. lit for decades across multiple genres, works from a decidedly environmentalist perspective. Countless writers have been taken by the beauty of the region. For instance, Nabokov said he could live in Los Angeles simply for the jacarandas. But even more often, the texts portray the non-human world as a victim of the city that has sprawled and spawned its destruction across Southern California. One of the chief archetypal symbols chosen by L.A. writers to highlight the victimization of the natural world is the L.A. River which serves as an often used metaphor for city leaders' historic myopia and mismanagement. Visitors to the city can hardly be blamed if they aren't even aware of the L.A. River. Its very existence has become the butt of many a local joke. Mark Twain once said that he had fallen into a California river and come out all dusty. <laughs> The huge concrete aqueducts running through the city might look familiar from Hollywood car races and chase scenes, but they don't exactly scream Huck Finn. In a decision that in hindsight appears a colossal blunder, the river was channelized in the 1930s and 1940s to control flooding. L.A. authors have made frequent symbolic use of the river, sensing in it a modern-day Greek myth about a whimsical and powerful water god shackled by humanity and its technology. Blake Gumprecht laments that, one, that, that what was once a beautiful stream wandering peacefully amid willows and wild grapes has since been rendered an ugly concrete gutter. Jenny Price, who acknowledges that the river is her favorite part of the city, agrees that it looks like an outsized concrete sewer or a Blade Runner set that a crew disassembled and then put back together wrong. And Luis Rodriguez eulogizes the river in his book of poems, Concrete River, describing spray-painted outpourings on walls that offer a chaos of color for the eyes. Rodriguez implicitly connects the blight of the river to the plight of young Latinos who feel that drugs and gangs are their only viable futures. For writers in Los Angeles, the destruction of the LA River emblematizes the broader victimization of the natural world in and around the city. But, as writer after writer proclaims, the non-human world is willing to play the role of victim only to a certain extent. Los Angeles authors repeatedly remind us that nature is chaotic and wild. Even within the civilized city, there exists a non-human world that refuses to be tamed. Far from being just a mood setter or a metaphor for, uh, of some sort of social criticism that the author wants to offer, nature for these writers appears in all its force and power. The classic example can be found in John McPhee's book, The Control of Nature which details various attempts to achieve mastery over the nat natural world. The book concludes with an essay, Los Angeles Against the Mountains, about debris flows that periodically stream down the San Gabriel Mountains, taking with them boulders, trees, and even eventually cars and small buildings. The essay highlights the power of the non-human world as well as the intensely intimate relationship humans share with it. What comes through in McPhee's elegant and non-judgmental rendering of the situation is that the local strategies, to a significant extent, make sense. But at no point in the essay does the reader get the sense that humans will eventually be successful in their attempt to achieve the control of nature. It's wild and chaotic, even as it butts up against the city. We're left with a clear awareness of humanity's ignorance and hubris as it attempts to control that which will not be tamed. 
key in all of these texts focusing on human, humanity's inability to control nature is the, con is the concept that regardless of human hubris, the natural world, natural world ultimately pays us no mind and will outlast us. John Fonte features this theme in the conclusion to his novel, Ask the Dust. When Arturo Bandini looks across the unknown and unknowable Mojave Desert, seeing nothing but wasteland for almost a hundred miles. And here's some of the closing lines from that um, novel. Bandini cons considers the supreme indifference, that's what he calls it, that lay across the desolation. Then he concludes that the casualness of night and another day, and yet the secret intimacy of those hills, their silent consoling wonder, made death a thing of no great importance. You could die, but the desert would hide the secret of your death. It would remain after you to cover your memory with ageless wind and heat and cold. The greater-than-human world remains after us, writers keep telling us, and will cover our memory when we are gone. Okay, I'll close now by pointing to one final approach to depic depicting nature in Los Angeles literature. And this one's a little different. It's a different lens through which to view our relationship with the natural world. Whereas all the other depictions I've discussed work from a fairly conventional perspective on nature, defining nature primarily as whatever is beyond the realm of the human world, one writer in particular is presently challenging our conceptions of what nature means in LA or anywhere else. I mentioned her earlier, Jenny Price. Anybody know Jenny Price's work? A few of you do. Um, I highly recommend her as, uh, as a writer, and especially if you're interested in L.A. Um, or nature um, beyond L.A. She's a good one to know. And sh She has an essay that you can find on online called 13 Ways of Seeing Nature in L.A. Just Google that and you'll find it there. Um, and uh, in that essay, she pairs down the issue to its most essential question, what is nature? As Price puts it, what we need in L.A., as elsewhere, is a foundational literature that imagines nature not as the opposite of the city, but as the basic stuff of modern everyday life. This means, for example, that if she's going to narrate all the encounters with nature involved in one of her hikes, she must write about more than plants and animals. She must also consider the oil, stone, metals, and animal skins in her 21st century hiker gear as well as how they connect her to the global transformation of nature, and even how wealthier Angelinos are more likely to live near L.A.'s mountain parks and to own cars to get to them. In other words, Price explains, it's too simplistic to describe nature as anything that's non-human and apart from the world of civilization. Instead, it's where we live, what we eat, what we drive, and even who we are and how we treat each other. Price's argument has significant implications for how we view nature and its place in Los Angeles literature. Because from this broadened perspective that asks us to view nature as practically everything we use and interact with, any writing about the city at all could be considered a form of nature writing. So when Chester Himes narrates Bob Jones's quest for racial and social justice in his novel If He Hollers Let Him Go, when Easton Maya Murray examines Echo Park Latina gangs in Locus, when Brett Easton Ellis explores the mania, chaos, and destruction of rich white adolescents in Less Than Zero, when we write about any of these interactions or explore relationships among the different entities within the city, we're writing about nature. Here's Price again. These are nature topics all about how we live in and fight about nature and about how we use it more and less fairly and sustainably and about the enormous consequences for our lives in L.A. as well as for places and people and wildlife everywhere. Such topics beg for a literature, for a poetry, for an aesthetics because to clearly ponder our lives in and out of cities we have to be able to imagine and reimagine these connections to nature. Last paragraph. This is what we do when we explore a text through the lens of how it depicts the natural world. We imagine and reimagine our own connections to nature. When we raise basic questions about how Chandler or Didion or Mike Davis or John McPhee writes about the natural world, we open ourselves up to having some of our most basic assumptions challenged. 
we may or may not be prepared to redefine nature or to expand our perspective to the degree that, Bryce, that Price calls for. But simply by examining L.A.'s relationship with the world around it and the way that relationship has been depicted in the literary landscape of the city, we offer ourselves the opportunity not only to understand L.A. texts in whole new ways, but also to achieve a fuller understanding of ourselves and our place in the world. Thanks, y'all. Um, um, Eric Avalon, now, um, uh, please, Eric, thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, everyone, for coming. Uh, it's so nice to be able to read something that I've written in a bookstore that I've admired for so long. Uh, and thanks also to Kevin for putting this fantastic anthology together. Um, I wrote the last essay of the anthology, which I would describe as kind of an intellectual history of Los Angeles. And I concentrate on four um, scholars. Uh, they're, they're more scholars or academic than they are uh, literary. Um, figures. Um, but I'm going to read just a few excerpts from this and concentrate on, on two uh, writers in particular, Joan Didion and, and Mike Davis. So here goes. Like all cities, Los Angeles excites a range of emotions. But as the 12th largest urban area in the world, brimming, with almost 18 million inhabitants, Los Angeles remains fixed in the urban imagination. How do we know Los Angeles, and where does that knowledge come from? This is a complicated question with way too many easy answers. It has become a cliche, for example, to implicate Hollywood in spinning a marketable identity of Los Angeles through a century of film and television production. That knowledge, if you want to call it that, prone to distortion, hyperbole, and much mythology, is suspect. But the images rendered on television and movie screens nonetheless continue to shape popular understandings of the city. Yet the idea that movies and movie stars inspire people from the world's pockets of desperate poverty to undertake treacherous journeys across oceans and borders to, the cities, to this city of immigrants is fatuous. Immigrant understandings of the city rely upon the concrete aspects of urban growth labor markets, employment opportunities, housing availability, and pre-existing networks of family and community. The Los Angeles that immigrants know is infrequently featured in films and television shows. Many scholars have studied Los Angeles from their various disciplinary perspectives, but only a few authors, among them Carrie McWilliams, Rainer Banham, Joan Didion, and Mike Davis, have reached a general audience. In both inspiring and unsettling ways, these thinkers brought Los Angeles into an ongoing debate about the future prospects of city life. Okay, so now I'm gonna fast forward to Joan Didion. Joan Didion saw a very different Los Angeles. In several collections of essays and in her 1970 novel, Play It As It Lays, Didion produced her own idiosyncratic version of Los Angeles and California a place she renders as the paranoid capital of the world. Many of Didion's essays are refracted through her own paranoia, alienation, and belief that people are, quote, moved by strange, conflicted, and above all, devious motivations, which commit them inevitably to conflict and failure. This was the characteristics noted in a 1968 psychiatric report that she cites in the title essay of The White Album from 1979. Unsettling, perhaps, this distance is nonetheless central to her typical, deeply skeptical and ironic perspective on LA. In the maelstrom of brutal murders, brush fires, riots, and the floating world of celebrity happenings, Didion keeps her head cool and her prose taut, writing about the city as if it were an alien world. With a deadpan eye towards a local mix of sex, violence, and celebrity, and the desperations and more than occasional delusions of the strivers on its fringes, Didion homes in upon the dark side of the California dream. 
Where some saw affluence and mobility, Joan Didion saw decadence. Herself descended from early Anglo settlers of Northern California, Didion sees Los Angeles as Arivist. In its paradoxical mix of lush greenery and harsh desert winds, quote, time was never of the essence. And late night radio programs air the rants of anonymous callers who confess their anxieties about rattlesnakes and the nation's declining morals. Homosexuals lurk in Hollywood's skewed moral universe. Knife brandishing strangers stalk the city's isolated canyons. Neighborhoods erupt in spontaneous combustion and women shop for groceries in bikinis and high heels. <laughs> the preponderance of mansard roofs and Greek columns signal the arrival of the nouveau riche. While Scientologists and Seventh-day Adventists preach the end of the world, and teenage girls place advertisements in trade magazines announcing their intentions to become stars. In many ways, Didion's Los Angeles is the very image of the society critiqued by Daniel Bell's The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism. The city symbolizes a moral dead end, where the underlying values of industrial capitalism, hard work, thrift, diligence, and delayed gratification, have given way to the hedonism and narcissism of 20th century consumer capitalism. Thus, Didion recalls that, quote, no one was surprised when Sharon Tate and four others were found stabbed to death at 10,050 Cielo Drive in the Benedict Canyon on the morning of August 9, 1969. The Manson murders marked the gory climax of a, quote, demented and seductive tension that was building in a city where, quote, everything was unmentionable, but nothing was unimaginable, and where people had been going, quote, too far. The Manson murders were but one of many slayings that caught Didion's attention. She recounts the 1968 murder of Ramon Navarro, the aging silent film star who was murdered in his Hollywood Hills home by two teenage hustlers. She drives to Rancho Cucamonga on the eastern fringe of Southern California's swelling metropolis to attend the trial of Lucille Miller, convicted of murdering her husband Cork and making it look like an auto accident. And she befriends Linda Kasabian, former member of the Manson family and star prosecution witness in Manson's murder trial. Didion even picks out the dress that Linda wears at the trial. Los Angeles harbors a chilling version of urban anonymity, where strangers lurk, lurking in the city's canyons and hillsides stalk the rich and famous. In a city of, quote, senseless killing neighborhoods, murder is as commonplace as palm trees, brush fires, and automobiles. Control is a central theme of Didion's writing, in part for reasons outlined in her own psychiatric report. She's fascinated with the vast technologies that control the basic functions of the city. She visits the Operations Control Center for the California State Water Project to watch, quote, the system work on the big board with lighted checkpoints. And she harbors a, quote, passion for seeing water under control, and she explains that a swimming pool, for many of us in the West, is less a luxury than the promise of control over the uncontrollable, the supply of water in an arid land. Traffic also is always under surveillance and control. She visits the Operations Center for the California Department of Transportation in downtown Los Angeles, where there are are again men at consoles watching a huge board of flashing colored lights. They are watching traffic flow on the 42 mile loop of freeways monitored by the Xerox Sigma 5 computer which communicates with sensors embedded every half mile in the pavement itself. The paradox of Joan Didion's Los Angeles is that it is a society teetering between the extremes of chaos and control while brush fires, earthquakes, and random killings threaten social stability and moral order, men watching the city behind immense consoles manipulate switches and flashing buttons to preserve order. There is no struggle, only enervation in Joan Didion's Los Angeles. Her early writings anticipated a rising conservative critique of cultural decline in the United States although her politics have drifted steadily leftward over the course of her career. Thanks in part to Didion, but also to contemporary films like The Graduate and Chinatown, 
Los Angeles had come to symbolize the moral turpitude of a society awash in affluence, the culmination of an age of excess and hedonism that defined the anything-goes culture of America in the 1960s. But if the right claimed a stake in shaping collective understandings of Los Angeles and its historic significance, the left issued its own stinging retort towards the end of the century. Deindustrialization, racial segregation, class polarization, and environmental degradation shifted the terms of the LA debate in the 1980s away from the city's quirky originality to its place in the age-old class wars. Mike Davis's City of Quartz, Excavating the Future in Los Angeles of 1990, the best known book by a member of the so-called LA School of Urbanists, sparked a cottage industry and some controversy around the analysis of LA's history and future. Timing was a key to its success. After yet another explosion of racial violence, the 1992 justice riots, City of Quartz was hailed for having predicted the urban uprising and as the crystal ball for a city's dark future. Like Carrie McWilliams, Davis crosses disciplinary boundaries. The son of working class internal migrants from Ohio, Davis combines intellectual history, cultural history, and architectural criticism with pol political and economic analysis of the region. But the book's brilliance derives from its ability to render transparent the hidden relationship between disparate events and processes within 20th century LA. Davis makes no secret of his Marxist orientation. In some ways, City of Courts reads as a geographically bounded recapitulation of the arguments Davis made in Prisoners of the American Dream, his first book, which narrated the bitter history of labor exploitation and oppression in the United States. City of Quartz, however, infuses this history with an urban sensibility, as if narrating the spatialization of class war in Southern California. That is, the way the city's geography and architecture, as well as its culture and history, were wrought by a century of bitter class conflict. In his take no prisoners approach to urban analysis, no one is immune from attack. Architect Frank Gehry becomes Dirty Harry for foisting his own brand of what Davis calls design terror on the city's outcasts. David Hockney, the well-known pop artist, spreads a happy pop veneer over Southern California's development juggernaut. And even Rainer Bannum enlists as a mercenary in the class war, a booster who celebrates capitalism run amok. All three men are agents of Southern California's historic war of the haves upon the have-nots. All of them assist capitalism on its path towards global domination. There is little room for dialogue, let alone debate. Davis's narrative is so airtight, so comprehensive, so unabashedly polemical that it's hard to even question the terms of the argument. Class war is not a means, but the means of understanding Los Angeles's history. Other factors, race, ethnicity, geography, language, gender, religion, and the many other elements that mediate social relations are secondary iterations. The analysis deploys a set of binaries that frame Southern California culture and politics. The first chapter, Sunshine or Noir, delivers an intellectual history of LA predicated upon a stark opposition between the critics of urbanization of Southern California and its champions. In this schematic compression of the history of writing about Los Angeles, authors are either lovers or haters, boosters or debunkers, purveyors of either sunshine or noir. Davis thus traces the successive generations of boosters in Los Angeles, from Charles Fletcher Lemus and the Arroyo set, to Rainer Bannum, developer Eli Broad, the architect Richard Meyer, as well as their noir antagonists, from Carrie McWilliams to the Frankfurt School to presumably the author himself, who use the language and narrative devices of noir fiction throughout the text. There is a rigorous adherence to this binary, no in-betweenness, no ambivalence. The rest of the book exploits this either-or framework, pitting homeowners against developers, labor against capital, 
law enforcement against immigrants and minorities. Davis tells the story of a city that nurtures its own heaven and hell, invoking the municipal slogan that it all comes together in Los Angeles. Davis weaves the disparate strands of the city's history into an image of what advanced capitalism entails for all of us, a nightmarish world where suburban enclaves of privilege are fortified against internal colonies of desperate poverty. But the primacy of class conflict in city of courts obscures the salience of race, which continues to divide Los Angeles as it did in deadly ways in 1943, 1965, and again in 1992. Unlike McWilliams, who acknowledged the racial fault lines that fractured Southern California's social landscape, in city of courts, Davis tends towards a two-toned view of race in Los Angeles, even though few American cities have the kind of racial diversity that LA has sustained throughout its history. As a point of contact among people moving north, east, and west, Los Angeles brings together a racial mix that produces a regionally distinct set of problems and possibilities. Whites now comprise a demographic minority in Los Angeles County, outnumbered by people from Asia and Latin America. At the outburst of the 21st century, Los Angeles is, once again, a Latino metropolis. Indeed, it is also a Korean metropolis, with a greater concentration of Koreans than anywhere in the world outside of Seoul. The same could be said for Thais, Filipinos, and Armenians. Yet as a basis of social conflict and as an arbiter of social relations, race plays a secondary role in city of courts. African Americans are almost monolithically poor, most frequently the gangbangers patrolling South Central Los Angeles. Likewise, Asians and Latinos, especially immigrants, are virtually absent from city of courts, except in the Latino community's role as pawns in the internal power struggles of the Catholic Church. For all its insight and depth, City of Courts proffers an analysis that remains bounded by the subjective limitations of a white male Marxism that slights the salience of race in a deeply racialized metropolis. Last paragraph. Despite its limitations, however, City of Courts heralded a new interest in Los Angeles's history and culture. Since the early 90s, new studies of LA that cross academic disciplines, social theories, and political ideologies have promulgated a far more complex and nuanced portrait of the city. The LA School of Urban Theory is well established, although its influence upon broader understandings of the city remains limited by disciplinary jargon and over-theorization. At the end of the day, LA still defies the conventional categories of urban knowledge. It remains an unknown quantity. Is it the future of capitalist urbanization? Is it anomalous in the annals of urban history? Is it the exception at the end of American expansion? These questions still frame contemporary debates about the meaning of the city, and they remain a fruitful basis for further inquiry at the outset of the 21st century. Thank you. I just want to thank the uh, authors who showed up here, uh, as I say, none of whom I had met before, so this was actually an exciting night uh, for me. And I suppose if anyone has any questions of any of us, uh, feel free to ask them. And if not, enjoy your browsing. And, oh, yes. Um, the, the theorists of urban uh, who are now uh, analyzing, uh, could he talk more about those theorists who are analyzing the LA School? The LA School, sure. Um, the LA School, from what I know, is comprised of scholars in urban planning, geography, um, architecture, even public policy at both USC and UCLA. Um, people like Michael Deere at um, USC and Edward Soja 
um, at UCLA. Um, throughout the 1980s and 90s, they turned uh, sustained attention to Los Angeles and developed uh, some kind of theoretical insights about what makes LA unique um, based upon you know, geographical spatial analyses, um, primarily I would say kind of Marxist class oriented in their, in their um, analyses of the city and the writings of, of Soja and Deer and I would say Davis as well um, eventually became defined as kind of an LA school of urban theory. In fact, um, there's a, an anthology by Edward Soja called The City, Los Angeles and Urban Theory at the end of the 20th century and that I think is kind of the best uh, summary of some of the insights of that, that school of theory. Seems like the perfect way to end that book, actually, with that piece, because uh, you're looking at, um, especially with Mike Davis, who, 1990. I mean, in some ways, it's really unfortunate that he wasn't sort of still working on the book for another couple of years. Right. Yeah. Right. But he actually, um, you know, after City of Courts came out and it was celebrated and attacked, um, I think he realized that he had more LA work to do. So he came out with um, Ecology of Fear which is primarily an uh, ecological uh, analysis. And then he, he did a book called Magical Urbanism, which looks at Latinos in LA and, and kind of how they're transforming urban life in Southern California. So that's kind of Davis's trilogy um, mm -hmm. right. in which he addressed some of the concerns that came up around his first book. It's also true that if he hadn't, uh, if it hadn't come out earlier, he would have been famous as the guy who predicted the LA riots, uh, which really established him as the LA commentator for the last 20 years. So it was good timing on his part in some ways. And also to you, thanks for understanding my logic and having Eric come last. <laughs> Any other questions? The genesis is that uh, Cambridge has a series of uh, companions. Uh, they had, to that point, been doing genres and periods and major authors. And they decided, uh, they this uh, Ray Ryan, who is in Cambridge over in the UK, who's the series editor, decided that it was time to do cities. And one day there was a I, in my mail, was an email titled uh, Cambridge Companion to Los Angeles Literature, which I thought was an announcement of a book that had just come out, but it turned out to be an invitation to, uh, to write a proposal. Um, I had been recommended by someone, and so I worked up a proposal and went about recruiting 15 people to write the chapters. And I was lucky enough to get these four and 11 others who couldn't be here tonight. What do you think about Davis's book, Magical Urbanism? Uh, what do I think about his book, Magical Urbanism? I think it's a wonderful book. I mean, I, I think that he has some creative insights that are not exclusively his, but other scholars look at um, kind of LA from the bottom up, like what immigrants, particularly Latino immigrants, are doing to transform the texture and flavor of, of urban life in Southern California that's beginning to change the experience of urban life elsewhere beyond Southern California. Um, and I think that, that it, uh, it gives a degree of agency to people who are usually considered to be totally powerless. Um, but when you think about you know, the experience of daily life in LA, um, immigrants are central to the way most of us experience daily life, either as shoppers or as homeowners um, or as clean car drivers um, or, or, or whatever. But I, I think that that, that book um, uh, is important uh, by looking at how immigrants, and particularly Latino immigrants, are kind of reshaping, transforming the experience of, of daily life in the city, uh, once again. To me, I should say, without going into a large advertisement for the book, that um, in addition to literature, there is a chapter on the appearance of the city in film. Uh, and also, 
I hope that this book actually might start a new genre. There is a chapter, seemed appropriate for a book on Los Angeles, a chapter on the literature of urban rebellion, which focuses primarily uh, on the Pachuco riots, the Watts riot of 65, and the Justice riot, but also looks at them as part of a, a larger and ongoing uh, sort of writing that is particularly indigenous to LA. And indeed starts with the uh, riot at the IWW dance hall in Sinclair Lewis's oil and the historical background for it. Any other questions? Okay, well, thanks for coming and enjoy your browsing. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Ashley and Arlo. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, or at the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.